You know, this past week, I um, had a neat treat. I managed to find a friend that I haven't talked to in a very long time on Facebook. Uh, almost 20 years, I haven't seen or heard from Patrick, and so it was really neat to find him, and then uh, he had a completely different last name, which, which made it very difficult, but uh, I was able to friend him, and we started chatting. It was, it was really neat to connect. We, Patrick and I, we did ministry together uh, almost 20 years ago in Phoenix, Arizona, and um, when I first met Patrick, uh, my wife and I were young, newly married, in our 20s. We were volunteering with a ministry called Young Life, and uh, I had gotten a phone call from the area director saying that the latest crop of volunteer leaders had just gone through training, and one of them would be assigned to my team, which we were really excited about because we desperately needed the help. Now, Patrick, when I met him, I, I, I got to be honest, I was, I, was, I was pretty impressed with him. First of all, he, he was really good at basketball, and he was really good at shooting pool, and those are a couple of things that we had a bunch of basketball players uh, in, our, in, our, in our club at the time, and so I knew, oh my gosh, this is perfect. The guys are just going to love him. And Patrick was really good looking and really buffed, and I knew the girls were just really going to love him. And so that was, that was going to be very impressive as a leader. He had the most macho job I had ever heard of. Patrick was in the Air Force, but he was an Air Force firefighter. So you kind of take the two and combine them together. So when the F-18 at Luke Air Force Base crashed, that's when he showed up and went to work. And he drove a Camaro that was mother of pearl. I don't know how you do that, but it was painted mother of pearl, and it had been a NASCAR pace car. And he talked just like Dwayne Johnson, the, the actor, the rock, like just monosyllables, just a couple of words. Like everything about him was super cool. And I found him very, uh, uh, I was very impressed with him, but I was also really intimidated by him, if I be honest, because he was everything that I wasn't. And, uh, and I was just young enough and immature enough and, and uh, weak enough as a leader in my youth that I felt like the leader of the team had to be the most attractive guy in the room, and all of a sudden, Patrick was about to unseat me. And while I was really grateful that he was there, um, I, I was a little nervous about my role. So this is what I did. I decided that he could be the coolest guy in the room, but I'd be the smartest guy in the room. He could be the bronze, I'd be the brains. You know, he could be the talent, but I'd be the producer. You know, and I felt better about that. And so I decided that the first meeting between him and the rest of the team, I would engineer it in a way where I sort of asserted my dominance. Um, yeah, this is my, this is my uh, immaturity showing up here. I, uh, I made sure that we picked a terrible place for a meeting. I picked a pizza parlor. And I picked it for Friday night. In the fall, on Friday night in Young Life, what we always do is you go to the football games because that's a great place to hang out with high schoolers on a Friday night in the fall. And I knew that he would find that experience intimidating because anybody who's uh, older than, say, I would say 18, going back to a high school campus without a real reason, like you don't have a paycheck or a reason to be on the campus, it's an incredibly scary place to be. And that's what the, the ministry, one of the hallmarks of it was we went where kids are. We didn't have them come to us. And so I decided that he would just get thrown in the deep end immediately. The first meeting with the rest of the team, we're going to go on campus at a football game. And so the whole thing was set up so that I would shine. And yeah, I'm a little embarrassed to, to talk about that. But 
So uh, we went to the meeting, and I'll tell you, I, I completely monopolized the conversation. I asked pretty much all the questions, and I answered pretty much all the questions, and I carried on and on and on the whole night. Oh, it's time to go. Let's all get in my car, and uh, we'll go to the football game. And I'm in, we're walking out to the car, and I'm just going on and on and on about the brilliance that's in my mind. And just, you know, I am the, you know, man, aren't you just amazed to be in my presence and hear and soak from me? And so I'm just going on and on and on. And I got to tell you, though, I'm struggling with getting my car door unlocked. It's broken. The car door lock is not working. And we all have to get in it to ride to the football game. And I'm starting to feel the flush of embarrassment. It's like I, I, everything had been going good and now we can't even get in the stupid car. And I actually stopped talking long enough to go, what is, what is happening? I'm kind of bumping. I'm just like, what is going on? And that's when the new guy, Patrick, speaks up. He says, um, Rob, I don't think that's your car. <laughs> And you know what? It wasn't. <laughs> but, you know, in my defense, it was the exact same year model make of my car, except a couple of small differences, okay? First of all, my car was dark blue. This one was dark green. It was nighttime. Easy mistake to make. My car was parked a couple of spots down, and we had come, when we come in, the parking lot was empty, and, so, and there was another car in between, and so I just saw that one, and I went to it. So a small difference, easy mistake to make. The other little difference was in the front seat of this car was a little old woman. <laughs> there was an old lady sitting in the front seat of the car, one hand white-knuckling the steering wheel, the other hand holding down the lock mechanism, <laughs> while a group of people are standing around watching one guy jamming his key in her lock, trying to force it and getting angry. She was just losing her mind. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, what have I done? And I start trying to apologize. She's just waving me away, like, go away. And I'm just, no, I'm sorry, I have another car. No, 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 no. And then now my team is pulling me away, but I'm fighting to come back and say, no, mine is blue, and you're, no, she just, she just. So I asserted dominance in that meeting, yeah. No, I was humiliated in that first impression meeting with Patrick. But, you know, I, I read a blog this past week that, um, that says humiliation is actually important because out of humiliation we get humility. I read this in a Christian blog. I, hey, I want to show it to you. No, it uh, should be the first slide before this. Ah, there we go. This Christian blogger writes this, the secret to life is that humility comes through humiliation. I wish it were different, but it's the truth. We learn humility through humiliating failure, and I'm afraid that we humans provide ample opportunity for humiliation to give us its lessons. Well, I'm glad you laughed, because I would laugh at it too. That's not true. Now, I, I, I don't want to impugn the author of this Christian blogger. I like what he was doing. I appreciated most of the article. I liked where he was trying to go with it. But this is not the Bible's definition of humility. Me being embarrassed in front of Patrick was not me being humble. That was just me being a spaz. <laughs> so this morning, I'd like to present to you just, just, a, just a glimpse of what does the Bible have to say about humility? Because I believe that's what the world has to say about humility. When you are your worst, when you are just, there is nothing good about you, when there is nothing left, a shredded dignity left for you, now you're humble. That's what the world says. The Bible says something very different. And if you would go with me, we're going to be in... Um, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. 
So go to the book of Philippians chapter 2. While you're going there, just a quick little bit of a, a context about this. In chapter 1, Paul the Apostle had just written those amazing words, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Amazing. I mean, he could have put a period at the end of that and called the book done and it would have been a good one, but he had more good stuff to offer. And the very end of chapter 1, he says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. And now we pick up in chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not teach equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father God, I just want to pray right now. I ask that you would, you would illuminate this. You would explain this. You would teach us this. We want to glory you, and hum humility is, it seems like it's, a, it's an evolving term. I pray that you would inform my words this morning. I pray that you would open hearts and minds to, to reevaluate a word that we've sort of just locked away in our vocabulary and think we have it all figured out, but perhaps your word has something new to teach us this morning. And so I pray all that in your name. Amen. So, I'm just going to give you a quick uh, glimpse into the structure of this, uh, this, what I unpacked out of chapter 2. I believe that Paul, when he's explaining humility, the biblical understanding of humility, he, he, he breaks it into three components. Unity, charity, and identity. That's unity, charity, and identity. And so, let's just look at it. You start off in, in verses uh, 1 and 2. Paul kind of starts interesting. It seems like a soft start. It seems a little weak, um, almost like he's hedging his bets a little bit. If, you know, there is some, uh, encouragement in Christ or any comfort from love, uh, you know, perhaps there's participation in the Spirit. Or if in your case, if so, affection and sympathy, then complete my joy. I just want to say this is not a soft start. This is actually a very strong start in the day. Uh, we, we come from a very different uh, paradigm of thinking today as they did in the first century. See, in the 21st century, the way we approach truth, the way we, way we approach logic, is that we say a true statement. We speak a true statement, and that true statement then begs questions that have to be answered that either support or undermine the true statement. In the first century, they did something that was called Aristotelian logic. It comes from Aristotle. 
And what they did was they, they asked questions first, penetrating, piercing questions that when answered, they all pointed to one inescapable true statement. You see, so Paul is doing that. He's not being weak and going, well, if this happens to be your context and consider... No, no, no. He is asking penetrating questions, knowing that every single one of us are going to agree that... And if you're a person who likes to write notes in your Bible, I might, if, you, if you're interested, I might circle that first word, so, or in some translation, therefore. I might, work, I might write right above it the word since. Because that's how you should look at this. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity is not a prerequisite to humility. Unity is one of the principles of humility. A lot of times you kind of think, well, we, it, he was setting this up. He wasn't setting it up. He was giving us the first leg that, that explains humility. And when he talked about one-minded, this is not the first time Paul talks about even to this people. If you go back to the first chapter, verse 27, he says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, and that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith. Now, it sounds familiar, the side by side, being in unity. See, because this church in Philippi had a really big problem with unity. They struggled with it. And if you read chapters 3, 4, you go to the end of the book of Philippians, you're going to see that over and over they struggled with certain people who had personal ambitions. And those personal ambitions led to people jumping on board and saying, ah, I like what he's doing, so I'm going jo to join in that. And then that led to rivalries. It led to division. It led to splits. And so Paul is saying, listen, if you're going to be humble, you're going to have to be unified. And so we are called in chapter 1 to be worthy. I'm, it's just so interesting. I'm, so, I'm going to spend a lot of time meditating on this. Being worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know that you can be worthy of the gospel of Christ? Now, it doesn't mean you earn it. doesn't mean you deserve it. But it means you seek after it. It means that you make it yours. It means you pursue it. You become worthy of it. It means that you don't just accept Jesus and then just continue living the way you were living before. I remember when I was in youth ministry, we used to have this Bible track. I don't think it's around anymore for good reason. The way this track looked was, um, and I really should have, I wish I found a picture to show you guys, but it had a picture of a circle. Inside that circle was a chair, and on that chair was a little stick figure sitting on it, and that was us. And the circle was our world, and we were, we were on the throne in our world. And right outside that circle was the cross. And this track then moved the cross into the circle, saying you invite Christ into your life, and everything changes. Only here's the problem with the track. The little stick figure stayed on the throne. Christ was in the life, but the stick figure was still on the throne. We were still in charge. We were still the king of our world, even though we had Christ. We're Christian, but we could continue to do whatever we wanted to do. That is not being worthy of the gospel. And so unity, humility, requires us to have the posture of uh, uh, unity, to have the posture of, of humility. And there is a time where we're allowed to argue and debate and, and discuss small little things like non-essentials. Listen, this is fun. It's good stuff for us to do that. But at some point, we've got to put all that down and do the work of the gospel. We need to be unified. There's, um, 
a, a pastor of ours uh, that we, for a long time in Phoenix, he used to say something that I it just, he said it so much that it's ingrained in my head forever. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. What that means is, on the essential stuff, and this is what the essentials are, just so you know, anything that had pertaining to salvation in Jesus Christ alone. That's the essentials. In that, we need to be unified. In non-essentials, which is everything else, have liberty. You could, you, we could debate it. We could have fun with it. We could talk about it. We could say, well, I like this. I like that. But when it comes time to do the work of the gospel, we need to put that stuff down and just be unified in Christ. And Philippi really struggle with it. And I'm going to tell you, they're not the only ones who struggle with it. All of the churches, even today, struggle with being unified, putting little things down and saying, you know, I have my particular passion and, uh, and, and it's really tempting for me to make it a hill that I would die on. And as a result, I'm going to stand firm on this hill, and this person over there, he's going to stand on that hill. And because we're on separate hills, we have to be in disunity with each other. And let me tell you something, you can't be any further from humility when we're in that position. Amen? So in essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. The second point I find in here is, is charity. This is great. This is verses 2 and 3. I'm sorry, three and four. It says this, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now when I say charity, I don't mean this idea that I have and he does not have, and so I give him out of my abundance. I have food, he doesn't have food, so I give him food. That's not charity, that's giving. You know, I have money, he doesn't have money, so I give him money. That's not charity, that's giving. Charity is thinking favorably on your fellow man. That's what charity is, thinking favorably on your fellow man. It's because of charity that we give. When we do the benevolent offering here later in the service, it's not because we're trying to meet budget. It's because we think favorably not only with what we have going, we think favorably of this community. And there are people in this community who are hurting, who are going through things. And so later, when we, after we do our communion, we do our benevolent offering, our hope is that the Spirit leads people to put something in there so that we can try to meet that need. We, we want to be charitable, not because they have a need and we can meet that need, but because we think that much of them. Why? Because Jesus did. Loving God and loving people. That's one of our uh, core values. We give in response to charity. There is a story, <laughs> I really like this. It, uh, it, you may have heard this, it's about the, the mother who was making pancakes for her boys on a, on a Sunday afternoon. And the boys, the two boys were arguing over who would get the first pancake. The older one had his argument, the younger one had his argument, and they were going at it until it got pretty hot and heavy. And the mom, sensing a great teaching moment, spoke up in an inspired sense, said, hey, you know, I bet if Jesus were here, he would say he would let his brother have the pancake, first pancake. The older brother immediately picking up what his mom was trying to, trying to teach him, he said, you're right, Ryan, you can be Jesus today. <laughs> that's not charity, guys. That's not thinking favorably than your fellow man. That's playing the system for yourself. You know, this, this is called the age of the selfie. Have you heard that? Google tells us that, that every single day, 93 million selfies are taken. Every single day. And that's just Android devices alone. That doesn't count any of the iPhones. 93 million selfies are taken every day, which accounts for one out of every three pictures taken. Think about that. This is the age of the selfie. 2015 
it came out that, uh, that death by selfie now eclipsed death by shark attack. Anybody here think shark attack is something you want to be a little concerned about? You know, I, don't, I get in water and I'm like, ah, I wonder where the sharks are. But you, get, you should probably be a little bit more concerned about selfies than sharks at this point. The age of the selfie is the opposite of humility. It is the enemy of being humble. And when it's all about ourselves, who gets that first pancake? You know, I've heard it said that there are two ways to enter a room. There's the, there's the person who walks in and says, here I am. Then, there's the other person who walks in and says, ah, there you are. You see the difference? Here I am, or there you are. Uh, the ex-NFL football player, Deion Sanders, it was reported that he had a really unique pregame ritual. Before he would go into a stadium to start a game, he would lay out his uniform on the floor of the dressing room. The whole uniform, every piece of it. And he would just stand back, and he would just stare at it. He would just marvel at this, the, the grandeur of this amazing uniform. He would soak it in so that he knew when he walked in that stadium, he knew how great he looked. That was his pregame, pre-game ritual. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt, he would do what he called power poses. He would puff his chest up. He would take deep breaths. He would, he would swing his arms around. He would, he would just almost be like a wild man in the room. And then he would stop, take a breath, and he would walk in. Here I am. Or even... J.D. Rockefeller, he had an interesting uh, ritual. Before he went into a meeting, he would stand before a full-length mirror and he would hold two pencils, one in each hand, and he would look at the mirror. And if the pencils were pointed inward, that meant his posture wasn't straight enough and he would straighten his shoulders back until the pencils pointed straight forward. He would drop the pencils and he would walk into the room. Here I am. Not, oh, there you are. How did Jesus enter a room? You've noticed that every time Jesus goes somewhere? How did he walk in the room? This is the guy that it is said he was God. Paul says it. He says, Who though he was in the form of God did not teach equality with God a thing to be grasped, even though he clearly had it in his grasp. He was, he was equal to God because he is God. But yet he never taught that. And when he walked in the room, he never played the God card, Here I am. He always walked in and said, Oh, there you are. We see it, there's a couple of verses. They'll show you, give you some examples. In Matthew 9, we have a tax collector. He didn't call out to Jesus. He didn't reach out to Jesus. Jesus, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And uh, Matthew rose and followed him. And then there was, uh, we have another one here. Uh, we have the, uh, yeah, we have the, the demoniac on the uh, uh, on the other side of the river in the Gentile territory. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He had these broken chains hanging, and he, would, he was stark naked, and he was a lunatic, and Jesus went, ah, there you are. We went across a sea through a crazy storm just to find you. And then last... We just, went through a last, we just went through a series where Jesus met a woman at a well. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus went, ah, there you are. 
I told my disciples earlier, I have to go to Samaria, even though it's completely out of the way for us to go there, and no Jew goes there, but I have somebody I have to meet. How did Jesus enter a room? How do you enter a room? You ever considered that? Have you ever considered that part of your Christian identity is how you should enter a room? Think about that. Pastor John, in his ponder this, he, he, he had a phrase I'd never heard before. I really like it. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but, thinking, but of thinking others more. I like that. That is walking into a room and going, ah, there you are. I didn't come in here so you could all look at me and say, oh, here I am. So that's charity. And then lastly, we'll end with identity. We... Uh, Paul just does this amazing job of comparing the cross with the crown. Jesus being in the form of God did not consider it uh, something to be grasped. He talked about the identity of Christ and how it pertains to his humility. Have you ever thought about that, the humility of Christ? He is God. What in the world is he doing being humble? It's our job to be humble. Why is he being humble? There was a, there's a story about a, a German company. True story. Uh, Max Dupree wrote this in a book called Leadership Jazz. He talked about this German company that made a drill bit that could drill a hole the size of a human hair. And they called it, if I remember right, they said it was the ultimate in machining technology. And so they sent samples uh, of this drill bit to other countries and waited to hear the response. Russia never responded. Canada did not respond. America jumped in and said, hey, we're interested in discounts, bulk orders, and, and uh, licensing agreements. Japan, and this is interesting, Japan responded after a while, but they sent a note written in, in characteristic Japanese courtesy. Japan says, we are impressed with your efforts. We have, in, we have enclosed your bit with, with a minor alteration. Hmm, Interesting. So the German company, they ripped open the bag, the bag they, get the, they get the drill bit, which is so small you really can't see it, so they have to put it on a microscope. And you know what they saw? They saw that the Japanese had taken their bit, they can drill the whole size of a human hair, and they drill the hole through it. <laughs> True story. Gang, I tell you, it is nearly impossible to be humble when your identity is a moving target. This German company, their identity was all in it. They had, a, they had achieved the ultimate in machining technology, and just like that, another company came along and said, yeah, well, we got that beat. Their identity is now a moving target. They now, what do they have to do? They have to find an even smaller one. They can drill a hole through the, the one that drilled the hole through theirs. Otherwise, they don't have their identity anymore as the company that makes the best drill bit. When your identity is a moving target, it is impossible to be humble. We're constantly worrying about it. And, and when he talked about equality with God is not something that can be grasped. You know what Paul is doing? He's taking us all the way back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. And they're hanging out there. They're being, the, they're being the caretakers of the garden that God commanded them to do. And then the serpent shows up and says, hey, you know that fruit you're not supposed to eat? You know why God tells you you can't have that fruit? Because if you eat it, you'll be just like God. You know what's interesting? I never... I was wondering about this. Why did Adam and Eve turn to the serpent and say, well, why don't you eat it? You really want to be God. How come you're not eating the fruit? You know, I think the reason they never asked that question because they're just so focused. Oh, my gosh. Can we really change our identity? Can we be more than we were made to be? Have we been held back? Are we allowed to explore and expand who we think we are? And I think that's just something that consumes us all the time, and we never pay attention to, the, to the, the fact that we're being set up in the process. 
uh, one of my favorite theologians, uh, apologist, a guy named Ravi Zacharias, he talks about how in 2016, I believe it was, there was a symposium of all the greatest um, uh, just philosophers and minds. And the purpose of that symposium was to define humanity. They were going to do it. Let's figure out who and what we are. And what Ravi says is, I don't see dogs congregating to determine dogginess. And what are we doing as the penultimate species on the planet? And we're meeting together. We're trying to figure out what in the world are we? Are we sure we are what we say we are? Are we sure about gender? Are we sure about you know, this or that? Are we sh- I mean, everything's up for grabs. It's the, it's the postmodern age. Isn't it great? We can be whatever we want to be. And so they're trying to figure it out. But I'm telling you, I think that when that goes on, it is impossible for us to be a humble people. Humility requires that we accept that God knew what he was doing when he made us. And that is a tough, tough lesson, especially, I think, for our millennials. It, 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 we have to be willing to just accept that God knew what he was doing when he made us. We don't get to make it up. And lastly, i just end with this thought, is Paul, just this passage really just did a work on me. It really changed my view of church when I looked at this section, because he talks about lowering and lifting. Lowering and lifting. And I see this a lot, where there is right now a trend in a lot of churches where the more righteous person is the one who lowers himself down. I'm lower than dirt. I'm less than nothing. I, I, I am less than even less than nothing. And somebody else says, well, I'm less than less than less than nothing. Oh, well, then I'm going to get even lower than that. And that's what it means to be righteous. And we use Bible verses to defend this. Things like, you know, our righteousness are filthy rags before God. You know, the, <laughs> that filthy rag thing it actually means like menstrual cloth. It's gross. Yeah, our righteousness is like that before God. Or we are dead in our trespasses and sins. You know what? Those Bible verses are absolutely right. We are. But here's the problem. We don't stay that way. Because when we have this this desire, this trend to talk about where we sort of compare how depraved we are to others and we say, I am so depraved. What we do is we leave Jesus Christ up on the cross because if he just died on that cross and nothing else happened, then we would stay that way. We would be. Our righteousness would be filthy rags. We would be dead in our trespasses and sin. But here's the thing. Jesus Christ didn't stay on that cross. He got down, and three days later, he rose from the dead. New life. And because of that, 2 Corinthians tells us we now have the righteousness of Christ. Our our righteousness is not filthy rags anymore. We have the righteousness of Christ, and his righteousness is not filthy. We are not just dead in our trespasses and sins. We have the life of Christ. We are born again. We are a new people. And so we're not stuck. We don't leave Jesus up on the cross. Because he rose from the dead, we have a new identity. And because of that, part of humility is not lowering yourself down. Church, if we're going to be worthy of the gospel, we've got to lift ourselves up. Hold your head high. You are a new creature. You're God's child. You're not dirt. But as a child of God, we are not, low, we are not lowering ourselves down. What we're doing, we're lifting everyone else around us up. We're always lifting others up. Imagine what it would look like walking to a church, and this is just my dream. I've always thought if I had a church, I would make it a thing where every member in the church had to say three things that lifted somebody up every Sunday morning. They'd find three people and just say something that lifted them up. That would just be a practice that we did. 
And I think what would happen is you would see a church and where, uh, you know, church A, where everyone is just, you know, we're depraved, we're nothing, and God is great, and we're celebrating our, our, our nothingness, how great is God. Somebody new would walk into that church and say, hmm, that doesn't look like fun. I don't know if I really want to be a part of that. They don't seem to even like themselves very much. Why would I want to be a part of that group? Church B, where people are lifting each other up, they walk in, and it's amazing. People are living life and living life to the fullest. You know, I think three things would happen if we were a church that did that. Number one, we would be, well, we would be hearing from other people things over and over and over, the same things, reinforcing things we didn't know about ourselves because multiple people would find the same thing to lift you up on and you weren't even sure that was a thing. And, the, and you're, you're hearing it over and over again, reinforcing the way God made you, the gifts that he gave you. Other people see it and you never saw it in yourselves. What a way to lift yourself up and feel great about what God is doing in your life. The second thing I think would happen is people start getting out of their bubbles because we always want someone new to say, you know, we don't want to say the same thing over and over to the same people, so we start reaching out and finding a new person in the church to talk to, find, get into their life, find out about them, and then say something to lift them up. And the third thing is when that new guy walks in the church, oh, God help him. <laughs> He's going to get swarmed. Oh, fresh meat. People are going to rush to find this guy, introduce themselves to him, find out something about him, and lift him up because that's what the church is. That's what being humble is. That's what our identity in Christ is. And so I just want to end with, I just want to end with this plea that humility is not humiliation. When I met Patrick, I was not my best. I like to think I'm a little bit better now when I meet somebody. But that was not me being humble. That was just me and my fallenness being stupid. Me being humble is me holding my head up and lifting as many people around me up as I can and just being trying the best I can to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Amen? Jesus Christ, we just pray to you that you would teach us. Teach us humility. Teach us to be the people that you made us to be. Teach us to not take our cues from the world and just... Just buying a little idea like humiliation is, is a, a virtue. and Teach us what it means. Teach us how to be worthy of the gospel. And as Pastor John comes up and leads us into communion, help us to be in unity with each other as we pass the elements. We don't put a piece of bread out and everyone helps themselves to it by themselves. We share the elements. We do it all together. We have charity. We have identity with one another. And as we worship through communion this morning, I pray that we could begin just right here, right now with this little act. We start to practice some humility the way you meant it to be. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.